was happening. I'm Nick Muniz. This is Nick's Nonfiction. Today on the show, a legendary book, Vance Packard's The Hidden Persuaders. <coughs> the New Yorker calls it a brisk, authoritative, and frightening report on how manufacturers, fundraisers, and politicians are attempting to turn the American mind into a catatonic dough that will buy, give, or vote at their command. Hmm, the New Yorker, I find that rather shallow and pedantic. That's a marketing trick. I don't care what the New Yorker says. We think for ourselves here on this show. So the Hidden Persuaders is all about these subliminal tricks to make you fall for their opportunistic opinions. Originally published in 1957 is Vance Packard's pioneering and prescient work revealing how advertisers use psychological methods to tap into our unconscious desires in order to persuade us to buy products that they are selling. So if they're tapping into our subconscious, what is sub-perceptible, how is that persuasion? Hold up a minute. Isn't that just mind control? <laughs> this book is from the Mad Men era, so motivation and psychological techniques were just being discovered. So rather than learning how to quit smoking, we're using these techniques to get people to smoke. The book sold over a million copies. You don't do that today, unless it's a fiction or unless you hold people in a classroom and call it education. You don't sell a million copies. <laughs> Back in my day, they used to use subliminal advertising to sell candy. Buy gum, it worked. <laughs> if I started a liquor brand, I would use the other companies to do my advertising for me. Call my brand responsibly. Please drink responsibly. <laughs> My new toothpaste had false advertising. It said whiteness guaranteed in 14 days. Well, it's been two weeks and I'm still Asian. <laughs> My knickers, we will be right to back. About the author, Vance Packard. Yeah, Fudge Packard. <laughs> Vance Packard, 1914 to 1996, was an American journalist, social critic, and best-selling author. Among his other books, The Status Seekers, described American social stratification and behavior. Also is The Waste Makers, which criticizes planned obsolescence, that sounds good, and The Naked Society, about the threats to privacy posed by new technologies. All right, we did surveillance capitalism recently. Fourth Amendment doesn't exist. The right to privacy, forget about it. The Waste Makers, that sounds like a good book. Why did Washington, D.C. get all the lawyers and New Jersey get all the toxic waste dump? Because New Jersey got first pick. <laughs> we'll be right back with the show. The Hidden Persuaders by Fudge Packard, Chapter 1, Dark Arts. Let's go! I love advertising. This is a fun book. Thank you guys for tuning in. A large-scale effort is being made often with impressive success, to channel our unthinking habits, our purchasing decisions, and our thought processes by the use of insight gleaned from psychiatry and the social sciences. Typically, these efforts have been beneath our level of awareness so that the appeals which moves us are more often hidden. Move us. That's what I said in the intro. This is below a perceptual level, so you can't even think about it because it's below your perception. 
The use of mass psychoanalysis to guide campaigns of persuasion has become the basis of a multi-million dollar industry. Professional persuaders have seized upon in their groping for more efficient ways to sell us their wares, whether products, ideas, attitudes, candidates, goals, or states of mind. Oh my god. Bro, if you controlled all the money, the next thing you would want to control are people's minds. In 2023... $300 billion was spent on advertising. That doesn't include advertising research, who they're always paying these psychiatrists to do. $300 billion? You could cure homelessness literally 10 times over. Instead, we're using that money investing into how to brainwash one another. Why was Pavlov's hair so soft? Because he conditioned it. <laughs> So if you own all the money in the corporations, what would you do next? How to learn how to control people's minds. The algorithms are making us soft and conditioned. And uh, David Goggins doesn't have to use conditioner, but he stays hard. Big quote. This has led them to probe why we are afraid of banks, why we love big fat cigars, why we really buy homes, why men smoke cigars. More with the cigars, what is this? Pop a leg bubble? Why the kind of car we draw reveals the brand of gasoline we will buy. Why housewives typically fall into hypnoidal trances when they get into a supermarket. <laughs> Why men are drawn into auto showrooms by convertibles but end up buying sedans. Why Junior loves cereal that pops, snaps, and crackles. Who needs to figure this shit out? We know why crunchy cereal is good, because it's crunchy. I don't know, I'm trying to make a deeper level for the show. Who the hell is studying all this stuff? I'm a human. I have a mass marketing degree, and you don't see me trying to study, hmm, why do men like commercials with hot women? Because they're hot women! Why? Why are you a philosopher all of a sudden, these ad men? So that's the deeper level of today's show. Who is studying humans? And I'm not talking about aliens or some shit. But if... <laughs> Again, seriously, I'm not talking about aliens. Yeah, so if you're still caught up on the first level of the show, well, I don't think subliminal advertising is real. That's why it's called the hidden persuaders. But we're not wasting our time with that. Chicago ad agencies have used psychiatric probing techniques on little girls. Public relation experts are advising churchmen how they can become more efficient manipulators of their congregations. In some cases, persuaders even chose our friends for us at large. Communities of tomorrow. That's the last chapter we'll talk about how retirement buildings are being made. But did you see in 2020 ESPN announced that they're making retirement communities? All this research ain't for nothing. It is very closely tied to the future. The president of the Public Relations Society of America said in an address to members, the stuff with which we work is the fabric of men's minds. It's not creepy at all. You know, most people with jobs, they work with material matter, products, services. No, no, no. Their job is to control your mind. Bro, what are you doing? <laughs> The symbol manipulators, just one more thing there. Bro, their job is to learn how to control your mind, and people will go, no, there's no subliminal advertising. It's their job that you don't notice. <laughs> Apples and bananas, like things that are good inherently, they don't have an ad agency. 
You only need to control someone's mind to make them do something that they wouldn't have done otherwise. So another deeper level to the show, advertising might be fucking evil. Moving on. The symbol manipulators and their research advertisers have developed their depth of views by sitting at the feet of psychiatrists and social scientists. So that's what I'm saying. A psychiatrist can help you quit smoking, but instead the psychiatrists are being hired by the companies to get us addicted to smoking. You ever see the Family Guy spoof? (laughs) It's just a, a black and white film, and it's like a guy on the beach. Every five seconds, someone cuts in, smoke, smoke. Are you smoking yet? That's all it is. Repetitive, ubiquitous messaging. Longer quote, motivation research is the type of research that seeks to learn what motivates people in marketing choices. It employs techniques designed to reach the unconscious or subconscious mind because preferences generally are determined by factors of which the individual is not conscious. We're going deeper into that later. Actually, in the buying situation, the consumer generally acts emotionally and compulsively, unconsciously reacting to the images and designs with which the subconscious are associating the product. So that's why the intro said, why do women go into a daze when they're in the supermarket (laughs) or they're in their own world dancing up and down the aisles? I saw a good meme. It was white women when they're at Trader Joe's and then it's a chick at a freaking concert. When a white bitch gets to TJ's, you better not stand in her way. (laughs) On stage, women cackle at sex jokes. They love it. It's because all their media... It's about relations and sex. So again, I'm going to make fun of men later. I'm not bigotry or whatever. We're being primed to shop and sexualize things. Advertiser Age says, In very few instances do people really know what they want, even when they think they do. So that's why it's a subconscious level. Advertising is telling people what they want. You have to warp their perception. That's why I'm just saying it's mind control for quick. And we know from the philosophers that perception is reality. It's literally destroying your reality. (laughs) If an advertisement is too dogmatic, it's bad for marketing. So you just have to be benign enough that people think that they had the thought themselves. It's genius shit. In the early days, marketers repeatedly suffered grievous losses in campaigns that by all the rules of logic should have succeeded. It's because people aren't logical in their decisions. The marketers felt increasing dissatisfaction with the conventional methods for seizing up the markets. So how are we going to get people to buy shit? That's why I'm saying you can't be overly dogmatic. Well, this car is actually better on fuel. This car is more safe. No, you got to sell someone a picture of the California coast with their hair flying in the wind. That's what the person is buying. So I'm saying marketing, it's not logical. This is not mathematics. It is an art. So like I have this degree, I'm telling you guys, some of my marketing professors would say, well, advertising is not completely teachable. Hold the fuck up. So I got a $40,000 a year education for something you can't teach me? (laughs) Advertising is not completely teachable. That's what I'm saying. It's instinctual. It's not mathematic. You got to understand what motivates people. And that's why I'm saying, who the fuck is researching this shit? You just have to be a human to know what a human wants. (laughs) And it's also why you can't force an idea for a campaign. 
you got to create the problem that the humans have the reaction and then you have their solution so yeah creativity you're not just going to sit at a desk and have a brain blast you need uninterrupted time that's why people have writers rooms for this stuff and then they were saying in the book how liminal times are even better for creativity so being between two projects is good for you being between two places but correct answers in this sense it's you scale and context dependent so economists i'm saying that's math psychology is a dark art bro <laughs> i'm trying to teach you the tricks rather than just hacking it up on stage moving to chapter two the trouble with people so even that name of the chapter is marketing there's nothing wrong with people the trouble with people yes some of us are more gullible than others but that also means that person is more trusting the trouble is fucking advertising. One of my professors, they used to talk about Omicron. That's one of the biggest advertising agencies in the U.S. And they had this test. Can you convince both a focus group of sober people and drunk people to buy a product? So half the people watching TV are drunk. But that's not good enough for Omicron. I'm almost slipping into saying <laughs> Omicron. How good was the marketing for that variant? <laughs> so Omicron group, they would test drunk and sober focus groups. And they would make sure that their ads can pass on both. And that's an old like law thing I learned about. That they would have lawyers in training go against a drunk jury. And then the judge is supposed to be the sober group. But I'm just saying here that maybe the only trouble with humans is we like to drink so that we can escape reality. Because you're either working or being bombarded with fucking ads. Why, why do people drink? Maybe to cope with the reality. A major ketchup marketer kept getting complaints about its bottle. So it made a survey. Most of the people interviewed that said that they would prefer another type the company was considering. When the company went to the expense of bringing out this new bottle in test markets, it was overwhelmingly rejected in favor of the old bottle, even by people who had favored it in interviews. In a survey of male beer drinkers, the men expressed a strong preference for a nice dry beer. When they were then asked how a beer could be dry themselves, they were stumped. Yeah, man, you know, I just like a real, a real dry beer. You like your liquid dry? <laughs> Sir, what are you talking about? That's how you know winos are huffing their own sharts. You mean the aftertaste is tart? How is a liquid dry? Do you just not have the vocabulary? To, it's a dry liquid. It's the aftertaste. <laughs> like That's every guy's dating bio now. I like a dry IPA, and I also like wet rain. <laughs> Come on. Come on. What are you saying? <laughs> so those people didn't even like the new ketchup bottle, even though they said they liked it. The Advertising Research Foundation took magazines to ask for asking people what magazines they read frequently and naively accepted the answers given as valid. The people it contended are likely to admit reading only magazines of high prestigious value. Mm, the New Yorker. Rather shallow and pedantic. One investigator suggests that if you seriously accepted people's answers, you might assume that the Atlantic Monthly is America's most read magazine, and some of the confession magazines are read the least, whereas in actuality the confession magazines in question had 20 times readership of the Atlantic Monthly. So yeah, that's kind of the problems with humans. We lie. 
but the only reason we lie is because there's a public perception that you're considered weird if you don't go along with. So again, that's not a problem with humans. That's a problem with mass society. But yeah, everybody's lying about what they read. Except you fucking bully. Join the Patreon. So you know how those people stand outside of like uh, voting stations and then they tally whoever you voted for? Everybody's lying. People just need to start saying, yeah, I voted for Megatron. I, I voted for Peter Griffin back there. Holy crap. I voted for Rigby and Mordecai. Nobody's telling the truth. <laughs> a brewery making two kinds of beer made a survey to find what kind of people drank each beer as a guide to its merchandisers. It asked people, dude, I worked at a beer store. There was a guy every single week who would walk around and pretend to take a tally. <laughs> the computer's doing all the work. Sorry. It asked people known to favor its general brand name. Do you think the light or the regular? To its astonishment, it found people reporting that they drank light over the regular better, three to one. The truth of the matter was that for years, the company to meet consumer demand had been brewing nine times as much regular beer as light beer. It decided that in asking people that question, it was in effect asking, do you drink the kind preferred by people of refinement or people of discriminating taste? You see how it's just framing the question? Well, are you a smart person or are you dumb? That's what people are seeing in the question. They're not actually thinking about what they like. So there was another study. They had women choose what waiting room to go into before the doctor's office. So there was this Ikea Swedish modern room. And next to that was this classical Russian room with a velvet upholstery. Most of the women went and sat in the Ikea modern Swedish room. But afterwards, 85% of the women said they preferred the period room. Well, I love an Occidental Russian theme. You're a liar. So you see, it affects women more because they're into decor and all of that. But men were doing the same thing with their beer. Well, I want to sound like what all the other men are drinking. Well, I actually love period pieces. You don't. <laughs> if you had to design your house like that, why do you want to live in a museum? Don't you want to live somewhere comfortable? When it came to deodorant, the women just bought whatever was pink. <laughs> there were cases where the companies would try to push new ideas on people. So that's like the whole Bud, de Bud Light debacle we just lived through. I'll try to compare it to this. In 1953... Chrysler made a car slimmer by 16 inches. It was to meet new road regulations. So then they got their ad team in. All right, we got this new fleet of cars for next year. We got to make it look like slimmer is sexier. 1954 comes around, and their share, Chrysler, was cut in half from 26 to 13%. So I'm saying they cannot control humans that much. Well, you guys like skinny cars. No, no, no. Girls like pink deodorant and guys like big trucks. And we also don't like gay on our beer cans. <laughs> so let me class that example up a little bit. It's an inherent French idea that scarcity is essential for good products. That's what we're talking about with the wine. That doesn't exactly translate to supply and demand. Well, scarcity is what makes something good. That's why some people fall for the call now scheme. Our supply is going down. Call now. But most people instinctually know, no, just like what's good. 
So I'm getting at what wine and beer people are talking about. They're mixing their taste with a feeling, a left brain analytical description with what they actually like. So this is why the winos try to act French. Well, scarcity is quality. Scarcity is not quality. Quality is quality. And then you get called an American Fordist because if something is good, I would think you should probably mass produce it. And of course, I could be wrong about everything. But commodity trading, that's what the French are doing. It eventually becomes shit because it's a repeat virtue feedback. At the end of the day, there has to be a material reward for the buyer. The beer has to taste good and not be gay. A banana taped to a wall is not valuable art. That's just commodity bullshit. Consumer choice dominates in actually free markets. So we could take it back to the social norm point. Like if I go to a restaurant and I ask, do you guys serve Coke here? No, we don't serve Coca-Cola. The restaurant is still the weird one because it's like, wait, you guys don't sell Coke? Everybody sells Coke. Group selection is what dominates in a free market. But it changes with demographics. If I go to friggin' Texas and I start kissing women on the lips, they're going to run me out of town. If I go to Italy and I kiss someone on the lips, the guy's going to be like, what, you don't, you don't think my wife is attractive? Kiss her on the box. <laughs> Group selection. You guys get it. So the point I want to end with is that Bud Light didn't actually lose any money on their stunt that they pulled last year. They sold all of their excess beer with Dylan Mulvaney on it to an African country, so they didn't lose any money. But the truck driver consumer feels like he's in control of the marker. Yeah, by shooting that gay 30 rack with my AR, I showed Budweiser. They didn't lose any money. We live in an oligarchy. (laughs) I don't know. It got a little too fancy in there. Propaganda is the opposite of art, and advertising is propaganda. Chapter 3, Self-Image. A researcher for New York ad agency said, People have a terrific loyalty to their brand of cigarette, and yet in tests, they cannot tell it from other brands. They are smoking an image completely. Holy crap. This is a certified hood classic. Dude, that's what I'm saying with telling people about the car on the Pacific Coast Highway. You are smoking an image. (laughs) Just smoke some weed, bro. It'll clear your mind up. Advertisers are selling people a lifestyle template that they can imagine themselves in. People cannot even taste cigarettes. Cigarettes burn the taste buds out of your mouth. And then they act like you're just trying to look like Joe Camel, my guy, all right? In a test of 300 loyal smokers, only 2% were able to tell their brand when given three unmarked cigarettes. 2% of people know what they're smoking. (laughs) So I worked at a liquor store, and people love ordering their cigarettes. Hey, yo, give me the Marlboro Short 100s, the red things (laughs) with the wide filter fat. Hey, what does that mean? Hell, I don't know. People just love the image of themselves buying a thing. Oh my god, dude. There was this black guy called Blue. His face was tatted up. He always walked slower than a sloth. He would come up to me and buy one Svedka shooter at a time. 
does this guy know that you could keep the shooters at your house? He would always pull out a wad of 100s, too. It was dirty money. What He loved the image of himself coming in to buy a bottle of Svetka. And he always had some shit going on. It was a good conversation. But it's just the image that people are buying. Yeah, they're going to see me rolling up to the corner store, baby. <laughs> Pierre Martineau was a French ad whiz working in Philadelphia. 1956, he had a breakthrough. Advertising, he admonished, is no longer just a neat little discussion of your product's merits. Basically, what you're trying to do, he advised, is create an illogical situation. You want the consumer to fall in love with your product and have a profound brand loyalty when an actual content might be very similar to hundreds of other competing brands. And I fall for this stuff too. I bought the Scrub Daddy that was on Shark Tank. It's just a sponge, but it has a smiley face on it. <laughs> While a competitor can often successfully imitate your product as to as an ingredient claims of quality, a vivid personal image is much more difficult to imitate and can be a more trustworthy sales factor. So you think in a free market, the best product always works. 20 cents of every product you buy from a corporation goes back to advertising. It's all in your head, dude. Consumer trust, that is more important than actual product validity. You're buying an image. You're smoking an image. So think about cologne commercials. <laughs> what the fuck is even happening in a cologne commercial? It's like Johnny Depp on a boat in the Atlantic, and then there's hot girls in a shower, and then it goes to a sunset at the end. So does this product make me smell like a boat or a sunset or Johnny Depp? It doesn't matter. They're selling you an idea. What the fuck? Cologne commercials. <laughs> Procter & Gamble's image builders have charted a living personification for each of their cakes, soaps, cans of shortening. Ivory soap is personalized as mothers and daughters on a short pedestal of purity. They exclude simple wholesomeness. In contrast, the image charted from Camry Soap is of a glamorous, sophisticated woman. As for the company's two shortenings, Crisco and Golden Fluffo differentiation is achieved by depicting Crisco as the image of no-nonsense professional dietitian and Golden Fluffo as a warm, robust, motherly care. You can buy butter or you can buy I can't believe it's not butter! Whoa! So that one was a little bit hard on women. They buy their soap based on groupthink. And like I've had heard girls say, this was on public transit. I remember the conversation intimately. You know, I really want to try this new hairstyle, but that's kind of like the top knot ponytail. That's a hot girl hairstyle. A hot girl hairstyle. So now all advertisers have to do is make you think you're in the hot girl group. You see how it's all groupthink? Men don't look at each other and rank their looks. Over-categorization, that's a shortcut to thinking. Your cognitive process can be bypassed like a motherfucker. As soon as you join a group, bro, you're vulnerable. 
But wouldn't it be even better, merchandisers reasoned, if they could build into their products the same traits that we recognize in ourselves? Studies of narcissism indicate that nothing appeals more to people than themselves, so why not help people by a projection of themselves? The way the images would pre-select their audiences selected out of a consuming public with personalities having an affinity towards an image. By building in traits known to be widely dispersed among the consuming public, the image builders reasoned that they could spark love by the millions. Hijacking love. Very ethical. <laughs> so I just looked this up. The average time a woman spends a day looking in the mirror, 43 minutes. 43 minutes every single day. What else could you do with that time? Not making fun of women. Men may not look at themselves as much, but they spend just as much time pondering their self-image. So this is what men would put down for a word association chart to see what car they would buy. When it came to Cadillac, men thought proud, flashy, salesman, middle-aged, social mobility, good income level, responsible. Ford, speed demon. Good income, young man, proud, upper lower class, drives to work, practical. Mercury, salesman, assertive, mobile, modern, substantial, lower middle, father. It's like a fucking Facebook personality test, dude. <laughs> That's why you don't see me flashing my Gucci or renting luxury cars. I don't have either of those things. But what are you guys doing? Are you gay? And no, seriously, it's okay to be gay. But this branding and shopping, what the fuck are you guys doing? Put on some overalls and get to work. Well, my car makes me responsible. <laughs> so you could buy meritocracy. Whatever. Put on some fucking overalls. Comrade. I'm not a communist. Couple more studies he had. Dude, it's, this is worse than materialism, defining yourself by what you own. This is voluntarily playing into a caste system. <laughs> so when guys buy automobiles, they're trying to prove themselves to be a certain level. But people who are secure with their self-image, you're going to drive what's economical. That's what the chapter was, self-image. Control it, or someone else will. Chapter 4, Sexual Overtones. Fortune magazine says, Infatuation with one's own body is an infantile trait that persists in many adults' subconscious. The ethics of exploiting it to sell goods are something else. Yes, yeah, something evil. What? <laughs> so yeah, they know that people are subconscious. The ethics are something else. Something fucking evil, bro. <laughs> Sex images have long been cherished by ad men purely as eye stoppers, but with the depth approach, sex began taking on some interesting twists, ramifications, and subtitles. Penetration to deeper levels of the subconscious was sought. You see what the author's doing? He said ramification. That's what surfers call gay sex. <laughs> Meme joke. While sex was soft-pedaled for marketing in depth, Bro, I saw, like, Tad and Thad down on the beach doing their ramification. That's what that joke needed. Soft-pedaled marketing in-depth's use is a simple eye-stopper, but then took more daring forms. The public had become jaded and permissive. 
The brassiere and girdle appeals, for example, became bolder with overtones of masochism, body exhibitionism, and so on. One ad widely exhibited showed a lovely girl with blonde tresses, dressed only in her bra and girdle, being dragged by the hair across the floor of a modern caveman. The, the title was, Come Out of the Bond Age, Darling. So the reason I messed up that quote is because he said the gay title was Come Out of the Bone Age, Darling. The Bone Age? That's good marketing right there. But yeah, all girls are being marketed to with body dysmorphia. I have sympathy. It's not interesting. R.R. R. McMurray, psychological consultant of Chicago, made the study into the motivation for buying fountain pens and concluded that the pen is experienced as a body image by men. Hmm, phallic pens. Which is why they will pay up to $15 for a pen with an image particularly satisfying to them, even though a cheaper one might write just as well. Uh, we're way beyond this. Pens. People have fountain pens that are worth $10,000. Think about dudes and their watches. Back to my point. Are you guys gay? You're putting $15,000 on your wrist? Why are you doing that? You're wearing jewelry? The book was saying it comes down to men think that their pen will get them laid. So fucking, if you're going to wear all that jewelry on your wrist, how come businessmen just don't start wearing bling? Sack up. A watch works the same as a Rolex. You're just showing off. How about you show up double iced up to the office with a 14-carat chain around your neck? You pussy, you won't. My man Derek in finances, he rocks chains so heavy they can hold down the Titanic, fool. Just wear jewelry. Men with their watches and their pens and their accessories. <laughs> this other guy, Dr. Dichter. <laughs> Dr. Dichter, he took the sex approach to cars. Men marry their cars. So, like, uh, married guys will buy sedans because they're reliable and cost-effective. Men who have cool cars usually aren't married and prefer variety. Women by the millions are yearning for evidence that they are still feminine. And men by the millions are yearning for evidence that they are indisputably, virulently masculine. So yeah, all of this advertising has destroyed true femininity. It's all just boss-ass bitch propaganda so that you'll fall into the dual-income household. Power women in pantsuits. But yeah, both sexes, women have to buy things to make them feel womanly and men buy things to make themselves manly because nobody is secure. During one of the psychiatric brainstorming sessions conducted by Weiss and Geller Agency, conferencees began speculating on the fact that much of the sex business and cosmetic advertising seemed to be bringing inadequate responses, and one of the consultants offered this insight. I think the modern ad should place more emphasis on one term, Eric Fromm. He pointed out that uh, missing in, what's missing in our society is tenderness. And he went on to explain, I mentioned that because what Fromm points out as the tremendous mark of the part of the woman who is constantly trying to get ahead and often pays such enormous penalty for it by failing to be tender. So I'm saying this dual income household, now that women have to work, you can sell them their sexuality back. Evil. But yeah, nothing is tender in society. Even the chicken tender salesman, Arby's, we have the meats. And then a sandwich explodes. Very tender. <laughs> you know, think about, to make fun of men here, K 
Keanu Reeves is this like alt-right god right now and people just watch John Wick death porn his old movie you ever seen Little Buddha it was so wholesome that rerun channels like USA they claimed it was too wholesome to be on air bro TV has gotten so violent that if you put anything tender on it you're off the air you have to keep up with the violence and the sexuality and exploding hamburgers he kind of got Freudian the rest of the chapter. Americans chew gum because we're stuck in the oral phase. Hmm, shallow and pedantic. What did we learn this chapter? Men think jewelry gets them laid, and women need to be reassured that they're a woman. Chapter 5, The Packaged Soul. Final chapter here. This book was recommended to me, so big shout out. If you have any advertising books, send them my way. The disturbing Orwellian configurations of the world toward which the persuaders seem to be nudging us, even if unwittingly, can be seen most clearly in some of their bolder, more imaginative efforts. In early 1956, a retired advertising man named John G. Schneider wrote a satirical novel called The Golden Kazoo, which projected the 1960 presidential election trends in political merchandising that had already become clear. By 1960, the ad men from Madison Ave have taken over completely. Schneider explained that this culmination of the trend started in 52, when men had entered the very top policy-making councils of both parties. For the first time, candidates became merchandise, political campaigns became sales promotion jobs, and the electorate was a market. And you know, that book was merely a satire, just like Orwell's novel. He who controls the present controls the advertising. By 1960, the presidency was just another product to peddle through tried-and-true merchandising strategies. Bro, how come Obama, he didn't take any donator's money? Or no, I'm sorry, he didn't take the stipend that you give a presidential candidate. He ran entirely on donations. So do you think he owes anything to those people when he gets in office? Speeches were banned as too dull for citizens accustomed to TV to take. Instead, the candidate was given a walk-on or centerpiece type of treatment in spectaculars, carefully designed to drive home a big point. That was the first televised debate he's talking about. And the debates aren't even debates anymore. You have two minutes per question to slander the other side. It's a two-minute insult contest. There's no debating going on. <laughs> you should be in jail. Did Hill Dog have any good slams on the Don? I don't know. Look, said one of the Madison Ave men, if you want to impress the long hair intellectuals and Columbia students, do it on your own time, not on my TV time. Consider your market, man. Your market is 40, 50 million slobs sitting at home catching your stuff on TV and radio. And those slobs are worried about the atomic age. Nuts. They're worried about next Friday's grocery bill. <laughs> Fucking scumbags, bro. That's how they look at us. We're worried about the atomic age and our carbon credits. <laughs> how easy would it be to control somebody? Continuing. So both parties unanimously this year gave $250 billion to Israel. While every single bridge in the United States has a hobo under it. What did I say? $300 billion is spent on advertising in 2023? We gave Israel that much. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know, this last chapter, he's saying that politics is a very marketable spectrum. Maybe the current system is there to manufacture consent for money laundering. Dude, if you could be sold a government, maybe you could be sold on much more, like an entire lifetime. In the 60s, Miramar, Florida was the hottest new lifestyle. This is the retirement home I was talking about. What does it mean to buy a packaged home in a packaged community? For many of the Miramar families, it would mean that they simply had to bring their suitcases, nothing more. No fuss with moving vans or shopping or food or waiting for your new neighbors to make friendly overtures. No community, no ownership. You're going to have nothing and love it. <laughs> Sounds a little Klaus Schwabby. It's all manufacturing consent. That's the old Noam Chomsky book. Dude, people can be sold anything. They can be sold the chains that they wear with pride. Where else could be you be playing bridge with your new neighbors in the same night that you move in? In short, friendship is being merchandised along with the real estate in one glossy package. So I want to end it talking about social media. That is the new sales team for lifestyles you don't really need hidden men anymore behind the scenes because you can get an influencer to do whatever you want to influence people to do with likes it's algorithm life dr reisman did studies on the miramar community and basically once people moved into the community it was much easier to group them into marketable groups so it doesn't matter what party you join or what e-group you're a part of as long as you see yourself as part of a group you become manipulable i'm trying to give you the power back so remember after 7-11 when george bush got on the mic this was his first address to the american people we had just been radically grouped up it's us versus them and what did george bush say the most efficient thing you could do to be a good american is to go shopping that's what you shouldn't work hard. You should go shopping. <laughs> so I'm saying they group you up and then they tell you to buy things. If you want to take your power back, you become a highly individualized soul with the utmost frugal nature. For real. <laughs> the hippies almost destroyed America with creating their own clothes. But you sell people that they're a victor and that's why they buy Nike. There's so much symbology behind advertising, too. We could go syncretism on this episode. That's what Nike means, victory. These people are doing magic on us, guys. <laughs> so for real, it's not just old people retiring. If you join a groupthink mentality, you're going to be sold on something. In the 1930s, just a couple stories left. The London Players' earliest reviews was one long curtain call. So this is when vaudeville was popping up. And vaudeville, that's where comedy started. That's when you can play directly to your audience. The more the London players tried to catch up, the less people came out to the shows. So I'm saying you cannot always let the audience take the lead. That's what the Bud Light thing with the trans girl was. You can't always let the audience take the lead. You can let them think that they won by getting a product off the shelf, but it's all part of a bigger story. We talked about trans people and beer for three months. At the end of the day, the show is the show, and unless you can separate the players from the play, you are going to be manipulated. Eventually, say by 2000, 
Perhaps all this depth manipulation of the psychological variety will seem amusingly old-fashioned. By then, perhaps, the biophysicist will take over the biocontrol, which in-depth persuasion carried to its ultimate. Biocontrol is the new science of controlling mental processes, emotional reactions, and sense perceptions by bioelectrical signals. <laughs> oh, great. Holy crap, Lois, man-made horrors. Industrial society and its future... So just one last thought there. This is what the guy's prediction was in the 50s, and now Elon Musk is saying he wants to put a chip in your head. I think it'd be pretty easy to control your opinion at that point. But when you are manipulating, where do you stop? Who is to fix the point at which manipulative attempts become socially undesirable? Let's say we reached that point 50 years ago. You could sell people a fake world and a fake timeline, but, you know, structures of power would never do that. Or would they? <laughs> there you guys have it, the hidden persuaders. I'm Nick Muniz. This has been Nick's Nonfiction. That's a classic episode. Keep on sending in your recommendations. I wouldn't be doing it with you guys, without you guys. I don't know how I would. But seriously, we're taking it to new depths. I am over here on the East Coast getting ingrained in the Madison Ave mentality. Big changes on the niche's end. Once again, thank you guys for tuning in. Nick Muniz signing off. Peace! <laughs>